Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Colored Red. This is a podcast where I discuss Colorado true crime. Before we get started today, I wanted to say a couple of things about the tragedies that have struck Colorado recently. Um, The first one is the terrible news that the body of seven-year-old Jordan Vong was found in his own home, and they have arrested a teenager living in the house in connection with the death of Jordan. Since the teenager is a minor, few details have come out about this, but definitely not the ending that anyone expected for that case. And the second case, of course, is the murder of Shanann Watts and her two daughters, three-year-old Celeste and four-year-old Bella. There's a ton of discussion going on about this case, and I think it's fairly obvious that no matter what's revealed happened behind closed doors that week, that the husband is at the center of it. But this is one of those times when, and I'm speaking for myself here, and the nature of this podcast in particular, when I sort of get a reality check about what crimes like this do to the family, friends, and community of those close to the victims. And I've decided to not talk about this case itself just yet. Um, There's nothing that can be said at this point in this time about the case and the details of the case in particular that's going to do anything other than add speculation to a case that's still ongoing and does not yet have a resolution in the courts. Um, I think, and I don't want to get really cryptic here, but um, in trying to imagine what happened between members of that household that night, we all have a habit sort of of projecting our own problems and insecurities into the story. And this is part of what makes so many people intrigued by true crime in particular, right? Um, The displacement of our own feelings into the tragedy of someone else. Um, There's this certain morbid fascination, not just with the murder itself, but with everything else leading up to it. And I've seen discussion about um, the Watts family's financial problems. He had a spending problem. She had a spending problem. They were trying to fake an outward appearance of being a successful family. She was in a multi-level marketing scheme that drained her time and money. He was cheating. He had a gay lover. The list goes on and on for everything that I've read about this. And until this is all revealed in due time, or maybe even not, it happens, um, we're left with this painful reminder that we're all humans with problems, um, who we project ourselves to be on social media and to our families and to our friends is not necessarily what we're actually feeling or going through. And I'm speaking now, not just about this tragic murder, but about everyone. Um, we can sit down and, and tell ourselves that here's this psychopath and he couldn't handle his life and his own inadequacies. And yet it doesn't do anything other than sweep this issue under the rug as something intangible that can't be addressed. It doesn't do anything to address the fact that we all, to a point, live within this facade. And yes, it takes someone else entirely to be capable of murder, but it doesn't address the issue that people are victims of domestic abuse every day. Um, People feel the need to lie and present something else to the world to hide depression, to hide mental instability, to keep up appearances. And I just want to say that my point with all of this is that if you're in this position, you're not alone. There's help out there. Um, If you find yourself at the absolute rock bottom of your finances or your marriage or your career or whatever, honestly, uh, just remember that the solution will only come from admitting to yourself that you fucked up and it's your responsibility to fix yourself. Even if you have to remove yourself for a while to get your stuff together or you have to give up your material possessions or you have to go back to square one and figure out a new path, no one's going to be the final judge of you other than yourself. And no one owes you anything. 
So that said, um, the tragedy of this family is on everyone's minds. And I just ask that everyone look at themselves, look at your family, know your friends, know your family, ask questions and understand that you also aren't in control of them. And that's how it should be, in particular with your own family. You're only in control of yourself. Um, and it's important to to get over yourself and talk about stuff with the people you care about. Or if you can't do that, just leave. And maybe certain tragedies and problems can be avoided in the future, hopefully. We'll see. So with that said, that's enough enough preaching for me for today. Let's move on to the topic of today's story. Um, in so many ways, getting over yourself was never on the table for a woman like Jill Coit. She had to do everything in her power to maintain the facade that she was living in. And yes, this ended up in murder. Jill Coit is what some would call a black widow. Her story spans multiple states, but the murder that she was ultimately convicted for happened right here in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Much of my own information today is from a book called Poisoned Vows by Clifford L. Leindecker. Or it could be Lynn Decker. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that name. It's a decently written book, but I get the feeling sometimes that the author is maybe a little bit bitter, or maybe he's sort of into Jill Coit because he's got this incredibly embellished way of describing her and some of the words he uses, like calling her an exotic and sexually magnetic siren or voluptuous vixen, uh, can get kind of weird. But I'll try, I'll try to exclude those from my story here today. Our story starts with a fake mustache and a wig. At around 9 a.m. on October 21st, 1993, a woman noticed two oddly dressed strangers meandering down West Hillside Court in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. She didn't recognize who they were, but what she could see was that they were heavily dressed in winter clothing, despite the mild and warm fall morning. The shorter of the two strangers was very obviously a woman trying to disguise herself as a man. Her bulky jacket could not hide her feminine features. What's more is she was wearing an absurd oversized mustache that was much darker than the wild wig she had on under a baseball cap. Her taller male companion was also wearing a baseball cap and bulky clothing, and the two were out of the neighborhood an hour later after this woman saw them. But by 2 p.m. they were back, circling around the neighborhood in an unrecognizable car. The next day, Jerry Boggs, a local hardware store owner and son of prominent steamboat family, Um, the Boggs family, did not show up for work at the hardware store that he owned. Jerry was an adventurous and athletic man in his mid-50s until fairly recently he had been a lifelong bachelor. He and his brother Douglas, as well as another investor, had gone in on the Boggs hardware store and ran the Boggs hardware store for their father um, and sort of added on to it after he had started it nearly a century before. This morning, Jerry didn't call. He didn't come strolling in at his usual early morning time. He had been living alone since he and his wife had their nine-month-long marriage annulled a couple of years prior after discovering that his wife was not only a bigamist, but she had been married seven different times uh, previously. Jerry had been withdrawn and still embroiled in a bitter lawsuit with his ex-wife, but he had still been managing to show up to work despite all of the drama. So his brother Douglas Boggs uh, took it as a bad sign that Jerry hadn't called or shown up that day. He drove over to Jerry's house on West Hillside Court and discovered his brother dead on the utility room floor near the kitchen of his home. The kitchen door was unlocked but blocked by the body, and there was blood smeared everywhere. The walls, the doors, and everywhere around where Jerry was lying, dead. 
There was a dust mop balanced up against his hip as if left there after an attempt to clean up. Immediately, Douglas Boggs had a suspect in mind. Her name was Jill Coit, but she would be known by many names over the years. She had been married to Jerry for nine months, and it was as if she had been specifically sent to make his life a living hell. This story doesn't begin with Jerry, though. It begins all the way back in Louisiana with the birth of Jill Lonita Billiot on a date that can never really be pinned down, either June 11th, 1943, 1944, 1946, 1950, depending on who she was talking to. Jill would later state that she was raised to understand that women were to entertain, get married, and have children. Her father was a towboat captain, and she was the center of attention for her parents until her brother was born, beginning her life as a bitter control freak who thirsted for attention. Her brother is conspicuously absent from any of her life from this point on, as she began to leave behind her family to seek her own fortunes and adventures. When she was only 15 years old, she left home to move to northwest Indiana and live with her grandparents. There she had a fresh start from whatever was impeding her back in New Orleans, and she immediately became a popular and rowdy new high school student. One of her high school friends would later recount that boys were drawn to her like a magnet. By her senior year, she didn't appear in the senior yearbook because she had already quit school to elope with a boy named Larry Eugene Einan. He is only described as being a bit of a dullard, spending much of his time involved with Jill and forgetting about the rest of the world. When they married, Jill wore street clothes, later stating in an interview that she didn't want to wear a white dress because white was for virgins and she didn't qualify. But this hasty fairy tale marriage quickly came to an end after they lived together for less than a year, and she acquired a restraining order against him coming to her house or her work. Larry also filed a complaint saying it was he who was being bullied and harassed by Jill. But by now, Jill was 18, free from the shackles of marriage and family, and ready to hit the town. Larry didn't matter to her anymore, and she was going to waste her time with any of his issues. The prime of her life was upon her. Jill wandered back down to New Orleans after a time and quickly became comfortable with the rowdy nightlife, swanky low-light jazz clubs, and sharing with others what the author of this book calls a sticky gloom that is exchanged over a cocktail. During this same time, a man named William Clark Coit Jr., who went by Clark, was on his sinuous path through the French Quarter when, by the devil's hand or maybe guided by a sinister spirit, turned at one point to behold the specter of a voluptuous and quirky woman in a low-cut blouse who lurked in his direction. Jill immediately caught the lifelong bachelor's eye, and if he only knew at that point that he would be the first of many lifelong bachelors who would be wooed by her siren call, he may have turned around and left the bar. But instead, he took Jill on a Cessna plane flight over the marshes of Louisiana the next morning. He would often charter a pilot to fly him around and inspect locations for pipelines for the Tennessee Gas uh, Transmission Company and the Tennessee Gas Pipeline Company. What Clark didn't realize was that Jill was still married to a second husband. After leaving her first husband, Jill completed what she needed to get her high school equivalency and then enrolled at Northwestern State University of Louisiana. Like every other aspect of her life, she enjoyed dabbling in her studies and was gifted and maintained good grades, but was never set on any specific path in college. She displayed a gift for comedy and acting and quickly met the eye of Stephen Moore, whom she married on May 5, 1964. And within a few weeks, she realized she was pregnant with her first child and gave birth on March 28, 1965 to Stephen Seth Moore. 
By the time their son was born, their marriage had already deteriorated, and she was hanging around the French Quarter seeking her next adventure. Her next adventure was Clark Coit. She and Stephen each filed for a divorce, and Jill moved in with Clark Coit, who had no idea that she was technically still married, and further, that she had a son. She began taking more random classes at Tulane University. She and Clark went to visit with his family for Thanksgiving, where his family was all charmed by her wit and energy, even though she seemed to be a bit too much for the reserved straight arrow that was Clark Coit. Clark was a bright and reserved man who worked his way up in the natural gas industry to become the head of construction on field projects. He spent much of his time working and had ample cash stashed away for a rainy day, or a couple of rainy years. He came from an ideal American family and had a brother who would later become a pastor. The family wasn't perfect, but they were all close, and so as the Clark Coit family laughed and enjoyed their Thanksgiving, sipping wine and learning about their son's new girlfriend, dark thunderclouds loomed ever-present in the distance. Only a few months after Thanksgiving, Clark phoned his family to tell them that he and Jill were married. They married on January 29, 1966, when Clark was 36 and Jill was 22. His family was a little bit upset that he had shut them out of any kind of ceremony and married Jill without even so much as an announcement of their plans, but they would soon find out that that's how Jill ran things. Her life was full of spontaneous decisions and rash behavior. At this time, she was still legally married to Stephen Moore. After their hasty marriage, Clark and his bride moved to Houston, where the Teneco offices covered a full block downtown. For a while, they rented an apartment downtown until they moved into a spacious house in an attractive neighborhood where many Teneco employees lived, including B.B. McCurdy, one of Clark's closest friends. McCurdy and his wife remember meeting Jill and being happy that Clark had finally found someone to settle down with. Thus began a chapter of fun and parties for the Coits and McCurdys. Clark and McCurdy would go on rowdy boys-only excursions with other guys from Teneco, to South Texas or to Mexico for golf, bird hunting, drinking, and carousing. Contractors for Teneco were eager to please, and at one point they even rented out a bus for the guys with a big stock of beer, liquor, sandwiches, and other snacks for their border party. It was a gypsy life working pipelines and traveling all across the South. Clark and McCurdy would take photographs and keep hunting trophies. They would sometimes drive to Matamoros or Boys Town, a town known for its red light districts just across the border into Mexico. They would all drink cold beer and wander from bar to bar. While many places uh, there knew McCurdy, they were not as familiar with Clark, who rarely, if ever, partook in the women of Matamoros. Clark was usually more of a designated driver-type person. During all this fun and carousing, Jill, meanwhile, was divorcing Stephen Moore in 1967, finally. On November 11, 1966, she gave birth to another boy, William Andrew, who would go by Andrew. And on March 1, 1968, she gave birth to her third son, William Clark Coit III, and their third son would be called William or Bill, as Clark didn't use his first name, and her eldest son from her previous marriage would go by Seth. After the third child, it said that Jill had a partial hysterectomy due to complications, but she would later say that she had some cancerous cells removed. The happy couple started to change and grow more and more distant at this point. Jill began to slip into her usual routine of shameless narcissism. She was obsessed with her looks, and she was overly dramatic. At times, she was an embarrassment to Clark, and she would make obvious come-ons to his friends. She would sign up for activities and lessons with handsome instructors and carry on obvious affairs with them. Stories about Jill began circling around the Teneco home offices and families about her affairs with other men. 
She would brag about her infidelities openly to anyone who would listen, and she enjoyed being at the center of gossip. At one point, the Coits held a Christmas party at their home, and McCurdy entered the kitchen to find Jill slipping into the back door with no coat on. She asked McCurdy if anyone had missed her. He asked where she had been, and she said that she went to go catch her son-of-a-bitch scuba instructor with another woman. Apparently, no one hates a cheater as much as another cheater. During all of this, her sons were in the charge of professional babysitters and friends, as Jill was much too busy with vague business dealings and affairs to bother with being a mother. At times, babysitters found bruises on the boys that they said was caused by Jill hitting them with a belt. As Jill spiraled more and more out of control, their family was plunged into a drama of on-again, off-again fights and separations and reconciliations. She continued to boast around the community about her skills in the bedroom and continued making a fool out of herself and Clark. The couple first broke up on October 10, 1969, when Jill filed for a divorce. She cited Clark's boozing as the reason she was ending the marriage, saying he would come home and drink until he was drunk most nights of the week. Jill herself would have some drinks here and there, but oddly enough, in all of the things that Jill was responsible for, she was never much of a drinker or partaker in drugs. In some ways, I guess she wanted to have complete control over her situation at all times, and in her divorce filing, Jill asked for custody of the boys, an unspecified amount of money for their support, some property, and $1,500 for her lawyer fees. She put the birthdays of the two boys as being four months apart on this application, um, which is an impossibility. Yet, a few weeks after the filing, she dropped the divorce and moved back into their home. Maybe as a show of good faith, um, Clark formally adopted Seth, and he became Jonathan Seth Coit. No one bothered to inform the boy's biological father back in Louisiana that Seth had been adopted or that his name had even been changed. Seth grew up to be especially close to his mother and would eventually see her drama unfold to the bitter end. So with this initial legal battle out of the way, as if it was the sounding gun of a racehorse, Jill's first foray into the complicated web of litigation, court filings, and lawsuits that would come to envelop her existence was when a man rear-ended her while she was driving around in Houston. She ended up suing him for $50,000, citing whiplash and emotional damages, and they settled for an undisclosed amount. By the time this ridiculous suit was settled, the couple had separated again, and on September 7, 1971, Clark returned home to find his sons at home with a babysitter. Jill had packed everything up and cleared out to return to New Orleans. Jill returned to their Houston home several times to see the boys, but on February 22, 1972, Clark again returned home to find the house cleared of furniture. As he sat in his empty home trying to figure out what to do, he heard a child crying. It was their youngest son, Billy. Jill had told him to get out of the car. Several days later, Jill would return again and get all the rest of the furniture while Clark was gone, and this time she took Billy with her. Jill had racked up significant credit card debts and several thousands to Foley's department store before she left. Clark's life was in shambles, and he confided in some co-workers that he suspected someone was planning to kill him, but didn't provide any further details. He finally filed his own divorce petition, citing different birthdays for his sons than the one Jill listed on her original petition, it was clear at this point that Jill wanted to clean him out of everything he owned. There would be no reconciliation this time. The only furniture Jill had left in their house was a narrow cot and a 12-inch television, which he set up like some kind of makeshift campsite. Clark continued to work despite his life crumbling around him. He would drink and go home and drink more. 
In his divorce petition, he accused Jill of abandoning their family, and he described the hell it had been going through with the house being ransacked. He requested custody of all three children. Several weeks later, as a long and surely difficult legal battle was amping up between Jill and Clark, he had withdrawn $10,000 from the bank so that Jill couldn't get to it, and he was carrying it around with him. That same night, oddly enough, McCurdy's wife received a strange call at their house from a woman pretending to be a long-distance call operator who was clearly Jill Coit. She said that she was trying to reach Mr. McCurdy or Mr. Coit. She told the supposed phone operator that she that her husband was out of town, but Mr. Coit was in town. The next morning, Clark didn't show up for work. McCurdy phoned his wife and told her to go check for Clark's car at his house, but to not approach the house at all. His car was there, and she decided to go look for Clark anyway. She entered an unlocked back door and slowly moved around the corner of the kitchen to find Clark lying on the floor in his blue boxer shorts and a t-shirt. Blood was everywhere and pooling under his head and body. Smears stained the walls. She immediately called her husband and then the police. Mr. McCurdy arrived after the police did, and they saw that Clark had been shot from behind. There was no sign of the $10,000 in the house, and his wallet was missing. The front door had locks recently changed on it, likely by Clark, and the door curiously had bullet holes in it. The pathologist indicated that there were lacerations on his upper right scalp and an inch-long abrasion on his forehead. There were no burns from a gun, indicating the barrel must have been at least a few inches away when it was shot at him. Another bullet had grazed his jaw, and two more entry wounds were found on Clark's back. One of the bullets in his chest passed completely through the left ventricle, and his liver was slashed as well. There were no drugs in his system at all. Clark had been killed with a twenty-two caliber weapon that was never recovered. The television was still on, possibly indicating that Clark was watching TV when someone came to the back door that he let in. Clark's missing wallet would eventually be recovered in a ditch off a road near the airport. At this point, I would love to tell you all that what you're suspecting happened to Clark was eventually resolved and confirmed, but I can't tell you that. At this time, the Houston Police Department was in absolute shambles. They were understaffed, and whoever was on the force was so overwhelmed that essentially there was very little investigation into any murders. Jill was never even interviewed or pursued as a possible suspect in the murder of Clark, not because she had a rock-solid alibi or because she couldn't have possibly done it, but because they never even bothered to pursue it past a couple of calls, at least. The murder of Clark happened at the same time that Dean Coral was murdering teenage boys, and the Houston Police Department would tell their families that they were just runaways. Eventually, for the Dean Coral murder, 27 victims of Dean Coral were recovered from three burial sites. Once the bodies of the boys were discovered, the rampant incompetency of the Houston PD was put into the spotlight, but Clark Court's murder was unfortunately lost in the unfolding mess of this department. Um, it would take many more years before the Houston PD could organize their investigations, and the mystery of what happened to Clark Coit would be forgotten by everyone except his family and, of course, Jill. And, of course, Jill had moved on long before Clark's body was even cold. McCurdy had informed Jill of her husband's death, and she reacted appropriately, but within days she had contacted her lawyer, who contacted Taneko on her behalf, and began questioning them about the death benefits awarded to his spouse. While Jill was in New Orleans, she, te she checked herself into a mental hospital to avoid any possible calls from law enforcement. It worked because Houston PD soon became apathetic to pursuing her, even after announcing that she was the only suspect. 
The Coit family knew immediately that Jill had something to do with Clark's murder, but were powerless to do anything about it. Jill didn't even attend Clark's funeral. Clark was cremated, and his brother later scattered his ashes along a river they used to play on as kids in Ohio, back where they grew up. A will of Clark's would be discovered in a safe deposit box that was written before the breakdown of his marriage, naming Jill as the sole inheritor of his estate. Among the possessions that Jill received were the house worth $30,000 at that time, several cars, including Clark's prized uh, red T-bird that he loved, a couple of family items, and some jewels. Jill created a memorial in New Orleans for her husband at a grave site, and her lawyer obtained affidavits from guests at a party she attended on the night Clark was murdered, which stated that she was seen at the party around 7 p.m. and then not again until around midnight, and this party was in New Orleans. The flight between New Orleans and Houston was short and cheap, and her traveling to Houston was not out of the question during this gap in time. She received the Thunderbird car in New Orleans and got a personal license plate for it that said QT Bird. She told her sons that their father died of a heart attack, and then she hit the road for California. In California, she found not one, but two new men to satiate her need for wealth and attention. The first was a man named Edwin Bruce Johansson, who was 89 years old. They both told different stories of how they met. Strangely, this man traveled to New Orleans and signed a document signifying that he was adopting Jill. Both Jill and her new old father declared her name be changed from Jill Billy at Coit to Jill Coit Johansson. However, three months after meeting Jill, this man made a new will naming his accountant's wife as the receiver of his estate. In the event of her death, everything would go to the Masonic Lodge that he was devoted to. In this will, he also stipulated that if anyone should try to lay claim to his money, then they would receive a sum of $1. Then, with his hand shaking and barely able to hold a pen, he wrote a new will, leaving everything to Jill. Johansson died on August 1st, 1974. Jill was somewhere around 30 years old at this time. The preceding legal battle would go down in law textbooks as one of California's most bizarre. Actual relatives of Edwin surfaced and berated both Jill and his accountant's wife for taking advantage of a senile old man who didn't know what he was doing. Mrs. Schwartz, who was the accountant's wife, and her husband allegedly convinced Edwin that they were reincarnated souls who knew each other in a prior life. She was a queen, and he was her slave, whom she had treated with kindness, so he owed her a debt. Many other distant cousins and relatives joined in on the legal battle over this poor man's estate, and somehow Jill managed to walk away with $60,000 share, three or four houses, and some other property. Jill had been a busy woman. Three weeks before Jill was adopted by this old daddy Johansson, she married a 33-year-old major in the U.S. Marine Corps named Donald Charles Brody. She indicated on her marriage license that she was married only once before and was a widow. They both indicated that they had extensive, extensive formal education, but to his credit, he was no pushover with the finances. For Jill, this was the exact opposite of what she wanted from a marriage, and their marriage deteriorated as quickly as it began. She soon packed up her sons and left Southern California. She headed back to New Orleans to dig up some old contacts. Jill would now end up shacking up with her old lawyer, Luis de Rosa. Of all the men in her life, he was probably the closest match to her, conniving, cheating, lying, obsessed with wealth and status. When she returned to New Orleans, she claimed to give birth yet again to the son of Donald Charles Brody in a home birth. She forged a birth certificate and named this son Thaddeus John Brody. 
No one ever laid eyes on this child, and including Charles Brody himself, it would appear that the entire birth was a hoax, and he never existed. It's possible that this was some kind of scheme to get money from Charles Brody, but the games were far from over. Luis DeRosa's wife soon learned about Jill and filed for a divorce from Luis. They were a prominent and well-to-do family. Marie DeRosa claimed in the petition that her husband was cheating on her with Jill that she suffered mental harassment and abandonment. Jill used aliases for her and Luis's activities around town, and they often slept in hotels together. The romance had apparently lasted for a long time, even during her rocky marriage to Clark. Marie DeRosa also hired a private investigator to look into Jill's life. The P.I. knocked on many doors throughout Jill's wake and wound up at the McCurdy house in Houston. In the DeRosa divorce suit, much of Jill's bad laundry was aired. In documents identifying herself as Clark Court's widow, she purchased $255,000 worth of church property in lots on June 1, 1973. She would come to invest money into flop properties until her eventual arrest. On October 11, 1976, the DeRosas were divorced, and Jill and Luis went off to Mississippi to be married. But Luis was no fool, and he signed a prenup declaring that their property be separately owned. Luis taught Jill a lot about the law, and Jill soaked up every bit of information that she could. On September 19, 1977, the couple wed again because Jill claimed to love wedding ceremonies. Yet, and this is getting predictable now, by the time they were saying the I do for a second time, their marriage was already on the rocks. On February 1, 1978, Jill packed and left up again and left New Orleans entirely where her dirty laundry hung from almost every balcony. She now headed up to her old stomping ground in Indiana. She never officially cut ties with DeRosa. She instead went to Haiti and got a divorce from the court system there. So guys, if you're dizzy with the thought of this woman's drama and problems, we're only just getting started here. After moving her boys to Indiana, Jill purchased a farm where she created a menagerie of animals for the boys. Here in Indiana, she met a man named Eldon Dwayne Metzger, a bachelor for 37 years before the unfortunate meeting with Jill. They soon married, and he got along well enough with her sons, and Metzger was an auctioneer and real estate mogul, and they had their fun together while it lasted. He helped Jill purchase a store, formerly known as Mary's Sundries, and Jill turned it into a luncheonette and then a noodle factory. Jill was always an entrepreneur with genuinely good ideas. The only problem with her ideas was her eventual boredom with the businesses. She had little to do with this one, as many more in her future. Her sons were raised with the out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality. She fixed up the basement in her home and set them up downstairs. Her youngest son would later recount that she had always had a different man and that she kept him and his brothers behind closed doors. Jill collected money from her many estates. She hoarded expensive toys and trinkets. She bought gold and stashed it in containers. She bought valuable coins and collectibles. She added a Lincoln, two Porsches, a U-Haul truck, and an Airstream camper to her collection of toys. She carried a gun in her purse everywhere she went, and she began collecting licensures and certifications for real estate and auctioneering and insurance sales. During this time, she told friends that she was pregnant and began buying things for a nursery. During the time that she was supposed to give birth, however, she was out of town and returned with no baby and no baby bump telling everyone that the baby was in a larger city hospital and had birth defects. When someone gave their condolences to Eldon, her husband, he apparently had no idea Jill was pregnant or even telling people that she was. Her supposed baby, Tinley Metzger, died without ever realizing he didn't exist. 
Shortly after this scandal, Jill was sued by Marie de Rosa for defamation of character. The suit was eventually dismissed, and while Jill was furiously collecting random college credits and licensures and business dealings, her marriage with the auctioneer ended, and Jill floated off to Culver, Indiana. Here she met a man named Carl Victor Steely, a commandant of the Culver Military Academy. He was tall, and unlike her previous men, he had just gone through a nasty divorce. He was deeply in debt and desperate for companionship. So why could Jill have possibly been interested in this man? For an inheritance that he was supposed to receive upon the death of his parents. To him, Jill was worldly and educated. She told him that she graduated from Tulane University even though she had never even come close to completing a degree program. Carl was an avid skier and traveler, and he had his sights set on returning to Steamboat Springs, one of his favorite places to ski. Carl was a former Southern Baptist minister, and one of the largest in- his largest interest in Jill, however, was her ability to quote the Bible, a trick that she must have picked up in a bar somewhere. Carl was right in the middle of legal problems with a plane chartering business he owned with several other guys, as someone had been suspected in running drugs. This didn't stop Jill from marrying Carl on January 6, 1983, in the Culver Military Academy campus chapel. It was possible Jill was still married to two or three men at this time. Her her Haitian divorce from DeRosa was invalid, and there have never been any records found for her divorce from Metzger. And just like with the changing of the seasons, a new man meant a new scam. Soon after marrying, Jill got a job as an insurance agent at a state farm agency. She was at the agency late one night and claims to have been attacked, robbed, and sexually assaulted. Local police doubted the legitimacy of this claim, but nevertheless, Jill was awarded monthly disability and recovery payouts from State Farm and Social Security for her reported head injury. Jill and Carl's marriage would play out in a series of promissory notes and deals related to loans going back and forth, and a promise that Jill could be paid with interest once Carl received his inheritance. They divorced in Haiti on what Carl called a honeymoon, but both claimed was for tax reasons. Despite this strange divorce, um, for unknown reasons, the couple stayed together and moved into her home where Jill traded in her Porsche for a forerunner. She started a corporation called Coit International and started a new business in the cab industry. She brought in her son, Seth, to manage the cab business. She also purchased a bed and breakfast called the Culver Bed and Breakfast. The couple wined and dined, bought a fleet of cars, and took frequent ski trips. By the time Carl's mother died, the inheritance was only a fraction of what was anticipated. Her old antiquities were sold, and Jill also took some, and Carl barely had enough to pay off some of the promissory notes that the couple had exchanged over their marriage. Um, This marriage ended up lasting nine entire years, including two years when they didn't live together. It was when Carl suggested to Jill that they take a ski trip to Steamboat Springs that the things started to come undone. Carl was looking to retire, and Jill had no such plans of becoming an old woman with him. While he skied, she ended up searching for a property to buy in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. She found it in a place called the Oak Street Bed and Breakfast. Jill decided to stay behind by the time Carl was ready to leave. She ended up selling the Culver Bed and Breakfast and was already making plans in Steamboat. After Carl left, he was out of sight and out of mind. His calls to Steamboat went unanswered, and the marriage seemed to sour overnight. During this time, Carl thought that he was the co-owner of the Oak Street B&B and learned that he wasn't on any of the paperwork. He came out for a visit, and you could cut the air with a knife between them. Accusations of scheming and cheating and thieving were flying. 
Carl filed for divorce, and a couple of weeks later, Jill did too. Courts in multiple counties received a shower of affidavits, writs, motions, and other legal papers. Jill called Carl a miserable and impoverished fortune hunter. He called her a selfish liar. She accused him of stealing some of her diamonds that she had hidden away and of keeping their tax records out of reach. He indicated that he believed she twice tried to kill him or have him murdered. He said that she prepared coffee for him one morning and he passed out in his early morning class and suspected that he had been drugged. He, re he revealed that he thought her attack and rape at the insurance agency was fraud aimed at getting disability money, and she in turn accused him of being part of it. Jill was very capable of dragging court proceedings out into years and years. There was always some excuse or issue, and nothing ever got anywhere. She would lie in documents to get what she wanted. If she needed her husband's name to get a property, she would say that he was a dedicated and loving businessman and husband. And in another document demanding something legally, she would say that he was a poor wretch. Finally, on December 23, 1991, they were divorced, and Jill was ordered to pay Carl $100,000. Thus began one of her most poor and desperate chapters of her life, as she mulled over her finances in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, cash-hungry and vengeful. Her son Seth invested something between $50,000 and $106,000 into the Oak Street B&B, &B using his trust fund. The living room of the inn was furnished with items from the late mother of Carl Steely. During renovations and decorating, Jill found herself inside one of the local hardware stores to purchase odds and ends quite frequently. The man running the store was named Jerry Boggs, and that's Jerry with a G. The store was one of the oldest-run family businesses in town. Jerry was, again, a lifelong bachelor at 48. He was tall with a balding head and mustache. He was a veteran of Vietnam and awarded a bronze star for his service, then given an honorable discharge. While in the Army, he was qualified to fly multi-engine aircraft and learn to scuba dive, and like many of, men, of the men in Jill's life, he had an interest in photography and he took it as far to have a dark room in his own home. And he was also semi-fluent in the Russian language. He had a fondness for mind games and puzzles, and immediately thought that Jill was intelligent and well-educated. He had missed out on romance for much of his life due to his reserved nature, or because he was just too busy to become involved romantically. Jill's bright red T-bird, a relic from her relationship with Clark, was one of the things that caught his eye about her. At one point, he and his father stopped in a parking lot that she was in to admire the car, and after this, Jerry and Jill could be seen around town, out on dates, and attending events together. They rode a tandem bicycle around the neighborhood, and Jill moved out of the bed and breakfast that was now run by Seth to live with Jerry in his home. On April Fool's Day, appropriately, of the following year, Jill and Jerry obtained a marriage license in Boulder. She indicated on the license that she was married twice and once widowed and once divorced. But Jerry was always a reserved man, and he enjoyed his hobbies alone. He booked a scuba diving trip with friends, and Jill wasn't invited, something that she ended up resenting. About the time he left for his trip, a major insurance claim was taken out on his house, citing water damage in the garage estimated at $18,000. Jill's flirtatious nature and general demeanor was met with side-eyed looks by the Boggs family. At one point, she was instructed to conduct herself like a proud member of the Boggs family. Such a role came with certain responsibilities and obligations. Jerry found himself in the middle of a life he probably never intended. His evenings were booked with social engagements and galas. They attended a yearly holiday event that Jerry had never been to, and Jill, as she usually did, enrolled in classes at a university. 
This time, she enrolled at University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, a four-hour drive from Steamboat Springs at the least. She found accommodations there to stay long weeks when school started. Um, and around this time, she was interested in receiving credentials to counsel people who were suicidal. It was when Jill was either 46 or 47 years old, depending on the year you use. Um, she began confiding in people in Steamboat that she was pregnant with Jerry's baby. The couple made an appointment with an obstetrician to discuss home birth options, but then they never came back for any prenatal care. Jerry was ecstatic, as his heart had been set on a long time on becoming a parent. He especially wanted a girl, and Jill informed him that she found out that it would be a girl. They prepared a nursery and purchased all kinds of items for the baby. It became one of their hobbies. Neighbors brought over nursery items from their own baby who had died as a nice offering. Jill's behavior started to become more and more bizarre as the time drew nearer for her giving birth. For one thing, she didn't look pregnant. She told people that she carried well and she hid her body under large sweatshirts. She avoided questions from Jerry about when the baby was due or who her doctor was. She went as far as to make future dentist and hair appointments for the baby at local businesses. Jerry phoned a clinic in Greeley that Jill said she went to, and they had no record of Jill ever coming in. While Jill played this game out with Jerry, a due date passed, but it wasn't for a baby. It was for the $100,000 that she still owed to Carl Steely, her ex-husband. She was contacting everyone she knew, including a couple still amicable ex-husbands, to find a loan. She found herself in a financial pickle that she had never been in before. Her properties all over the states had long been sold, and the money used to buy the bed and breakfast and renovated. She had no more hidden investments for a rainy day. At one point, she advertised the bed and breakfast as being up for sale. Sometime it was listed for $750,000, another point for $650,000, and those were both way over the actual value, which was something under $200,000. Jill then went to Jerry for the money and agreed to hold the deed for the bed and breakfast as collateral. But when Jerry was questioned about the deed, he said that he thought it was meant to protect the business for their child and combine some finances. He knew nothing about a loan in the amount of $100,000, and Jill never ended up receiving that loan from him. Jerry Boggs' brother watched all of this unfold with a lot of suspicions. He and Jerry had always been close, and they were business partners, and there seemed to be some threats coming from Jill that her financial woes could ruin their hardware business if things ever got far enough. His suspicions about Jill were confirmed when Carl Steely ended up traveling to Steamboat to speak with a lawyer about filing a lawsuit against Jill over the $100,000 plus more, and Douglas Boggs got wind of this news. He told his brother, and the life of Jerry Boggs was struck with a bombshell. Douglas also spoke with Carl Steely and even went as far as to hire a private investigator. Of course, what he then heard about Jill was enough to make anyone's toes curled. She was a bigamist. She used fake aliases. She was the number one suspect in the murder of one of her husbands. She was deeply in debt and at the center of many lawsuits over the years, including her newest one with Carl Steely. Jerry Boggs was embarrassed, to say the least. The couple obtained an annulment from a judge in a town in Nebraska so as to not arouse reporters or gossip in Steamboat Springs. There were no references in Jill's affidavit that she was pregnant. Jerry spent the upcoming Christmas at his parents, stewing in his own embarrassment and depression. He had been informed by Jill that she had given birth in Denver alone, and he had yet to see his supposed daughter. Jerry could barely function and remained reclusive in his home as his mind twisted and turned around Jill's games and the thought that he was a new father to a daughter that he would never get to see. His eyes looked hollow and his hands shook. He could barely finish tasks at work. 
Meanwhile, Jill was still hammering away at life with the same fervor she always had. She called Jerry incessantly and pestered him about every minor thing. One day, while Jerry was gone, someone took the handheld garage door opener from his Jeep and used it to get into the house and leave an unknown business card on his pillow. For months, she harassed him, claiming he destroyed her property when he moved it out of his house. And as he tracked her trail of flim-flam through Texas, Indiana, and Colorado, his suspicions about her became true. Jill began telling everyone in Steamboat that Jerry was impotent and he was also a closet homosexual. She would write Jerry long letters sent to his lawyer complaining about everything from his inability to love and be a friend to one incident where he drank too much while they were in a hot tub together. In some letters, she accused him of calling her stupid and belittling her because she was part Native American and Southern. She complained that he used sex as a weapon and that he thought she was ugly. She wrote a 10-page diatribe to convince Jerry that she actually did have a baby and was caring for it. In the letter, she both denied the pregnancy and claimed that she was pregnant before they were married. She then promised to never file a paternity suit or come after him for child support. She claimed her real friend stood behind her and would back her up and her story about giving birth alone in one of her son's houses in Denver. She stated her banker would give a testimony that she was a good person of sound mind. She berated Jerry for his lack of religion and stated that he believed equally in all gods and that she was worried about the religious upbringing of their daughter. At one point, Jill arrived in Steamboat with a bundled-up doll and pretended that it was their daughter. Jerry was still reeling about whether or not he had a daughter and even spoke with Carl Steely, who informed Jerry that he was almost positive Jill had a hysterectomy, but that nothing with Jill, with Jill could ever even be certain. Jerry was infuriated. He revoked the will, naming his daughter and Jill as beneficiaries. He still had the deed to the bed and breakfast, and it would be his one leverage against Jill, who had everything tied up in that business. He began taping her erratic and ludicrous calls to his house and told her many times that he would give over the deed if he could know for certain that there was no baby. She refused to tell him either way. Jill filed a defamation suit claiming that she and the baby had been thrown out of his home just before she was to give birth. Jerry ended up informing his legal counsel that he just wanted all of this over with as quickly as possible, but that he needed to know, for sure, that there was no child. In this legal mess, Seth was first to be interviewed for his deposition. The only problem was that Jill was present for this, and while Seth would provide vague, one-word answers, Jill would chime in and answer for him. Seth stated that his mom was too mature to ever be pregnant with a child with Jerry Boggs. He also indicated that he didn't want to sell the bed and breakfast, and he had grown accustomed to working there and was now living there with his wife. He was asked whether or not Jill ever took money from the till, and he stated he wasn't sure. He gave every indication that he did absolutely no bookkeeping and had no idea what the finances of the bed and breakfast actually looked like. When it was Jill's turn to testify, she stalked out, refusing to cooperate. In her usual fashion, Jill would do anything in her power to delay legal proceedings and make everything as tedious as possible. During her eventual questioning, she weaved and bobbed, she answered in riddles, she answered incompletely, and she made the lawyer work for every single answer. She had trouble keeping track of all the money she owed around the country and could not remember the amounts or names of her creditors. She would answer questions about how two people were related by saying that they were relatives. She would answer questions about where people lived by saying that they lived in some general state. She would answer who people were by saying that they were her friends from some state and not provide any name or meaningful information without a struggle. She answered the question about whether or not she had been pregnant with Jerry's child, that it was what Jerry wanted. 
she began to confuse references to hearings with her dealings with her other husbands. She agreed that she stole a journal from Jerry that detailed his private thoughts and that she had lost it, but would turn it in when she found it. And, of course, it was never found. So if all this wasn't enough, on Friday, February 7th, 1992, six weeks after her divorce from Carl Steely was finalized, Jill married Roy C. Carroll in Las Vegas. He was a retired Navy chief petty officer. In this application, she boosted her birthday to 1951, trimming seven or eight years off of her actual age. She signed her name on it as Jill Boggs and actually claimed that she was the widow of Jerry Boggs, who was not even yet dead. To add even more to her busy life of scam and flandering, she was also shacking up with the man 20 years her junior named Michael Backus. Michael was a hard-working, blue-collar sort of guy who fell under her spell after he rented the downstairs apartment in her house in Greeley. Jill kept busy with her husband in Texas and her boyfriend in Greeley. She also managed to be a full-time college student, business manager of the bed and breakfast, and she managed to keep up with her dealings with lawyers and other matters related to Jerry and Carl. Jerry had finally released the deed to the bed and breakfast after being assured there was no child, but they were still locked in illegal squabbles over various damages and expenses related to preparing for the baby and other things. She was still involved in the $250,000 now lawsuit with Carl Steely. Jill's desire for some kind of revenge and control was growing. She speculated with Seth's wife about putting a snake in Jerry's mailbox. She also toyed with the idea of putting in an ad in Steamboat Springs newspapers for gay relationships and offering up the Boggs hardware number as the contact. She openly ridiculed Jerry and expressed her desire to have him killed. Jill even phoned Seth several times and asked him to kill Jerry for her, which he refused to do. Michael Backus, Jill's youngest young boyfriend, it turns out, was also a talker. He wasn't too bright. Michael asked his friend at his job five separate times to kill Jerry Boggs and offered him thousands of dollars for the hit. Michael had been told by Jill that the inn was worth a million dollars, and he believed it, and he would soon have the money to pay his co-worker for the hit. He indicated to his co-worker that Jerry was a bloodthirsty womanizer and bisexual who deserved to die for his perversions. He called him a faggot, among other terms, and indicated that he was preventing Jill from selling the bed and breakfast. Meanwhile, Jill again stalled in her court day with Jerry over lingering lawsuits, at one point getting a surgery to replace her right hip and getting a continuance of three months. In this time, Jill was restrained from selling the bed and breakfast or ending her real estate holdings in the county until the lawsuit could be concluded, and this prevented her from selling the place, which was now on the market for $200,000 a far cry from the million that Michael Backus apparently thought was coming to them. During this recovery time from this surgery, Jill packed up and went to a small town in Iowa and, posing as a lesbian and a psychologist, asked an acquaintance she made there to kill a man in Colorado for her because she claimed that he had raped and was abusing a small child in Steamboat. The woman had, that she asked to do this had a hard time believing her story, and if it were true, it was for the authorities to deal with and not something that she could take care of for Jill. Jill was now frantic. She asked a hairstylist in the same time if she could borrow a blonde wig, and the woman agreed to loan it to her. She continued to pester Seth to kill Jerry, or at the very least, help her with the body after she took care of it herself. Michael was tagging along as well and had become just as obsessed with murdering Jerry as Jill and he confided in his co-worker about this fact. Jill's husband, Roy, back in Texas at this point, was presumably sitting in a room listening to a ticking clock, wondering when Jill would finally get back from her errands. With the trial date looming near, Jerry was anxious to have everything over with. 
In the back of his mind, he still wondered if there was ever a baby, because I'm not sure Jill's answers to anything ever put his mind at ease. On Thursday, October 31st, 1993, Jerry closed the till in the hardware store and went home. He didn't return the next morning for his shift. Douglas Boggs, his brother, went over to the house to check on his brother and found him curled up beside the utility room door near his kitchen. Blood was spattered everywhere. There was a massive gash across his forehead that would later be determined to be caused by a shovel striking him in the face. There was a hole in the back of his parka and that he was wearing that looked like a gunshot entry wound. A plastic bag was near the body as well as a slug from a small caliber weapon. The kitchen looked like a slaughterhouse. The tape from the answering machine was gone. Police officers waited for a warrant before combing the house. They also went door to door, which is when they heard the story of the strangely dressed people and woman in fake mustache loitering around the neighborhood. It was determined that the gun used to kill Jerry was a twenty-two caliber, the same type that had killed Clark Coit. This gun would never be recovered. The timing of his death would be vitally important. Due to two Girl Scouts selling him cookies at 4 p.m. that day, it could be verified that he was still alive at that time. The suspicious neighborhood characters were there in the morning, then seen closer to 3 p.m. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation was called in to assure that there was no foul-ups in this investigation. Jerry had a modest collection of guns which were never used. The shovel propped up against him had unusable fingerprint smears and blood on it. Curiously, his car had several blank cassette tapes, trash bags, a Denver map, and a compass in it. Jerry was shot three times, twice in the chest and once in the right arm. He still had his wallet on him with $260 cash in it. A witness claimed to have seen a bright red sports car driving down the road on the day of the murder, which she recognized as Jill's car or one just like it. The driver was wearing an oversized fake mustache and baseball cap turned backwards. Jill was also seen stalking out the funeral home later in a rental car with no disguise on. Jill later called her lawyer and asked if she had any travel restrictions due to Jerry's murder. He said she didn't, and she indicated that she would be traveling for a while. While Jill was in Greeley, she made it a point to establish an alibi for herself during the time of Jerry's murder, which is why the actual time of the murder would become so critical. She had her nails done and had Michael go up to a campsite and submit the fee to reserve a camping spot that they likely never camped in. She made it a point to talk to tenants at her house and make her presence known and make their plans to camp known, which the tenants found odd. Jill wasn't the camping type, and she never had bothered to tell them her plans before. She also told this neighbor at 9 a.m. on Friday morning after the murder and six hours before the body was to be discovered that her husband had been killed and that he might want to get legal representation in case people come questioning this neighbor. She surmised that some of her ex-husband's gay lovers killed him to avoid personal embarrassment before the trial. CBI agents descended upon the bed and breakfast and uncovered years of checks and paperwork featuring Jill's many names and husbands. Michael was becoming erratic and strange at work as well. His distraction and concern over the whole ordeal was obvious. He continually expressed to his co-workers that he wasn't there that he wasn't the man seen with the strange mustached Jill and that he didn't own a light tan jacket. The co-worker later noted that he did own one and that Michael was wearing brand new work boots that week. He begged his co-worker to actually beat him up as he slipped further and further into madness over the murder. Jill was confirmed to be at the manicurist at 3 p.m. on Friday and was seen in Greeley around 1 a.m. Friday, making the time of Jerry's death vital. The strangers lurking in Steamboat on Thursday could have been there all day for anyone new. 
The other sons of Jill were questioned, and they had not seen Jill, who was now gone. It would turn out that she was in Mexico, at the U.S. Embassy there, and she signed a power of attorney giving Seth full control over the bed and breakfast. While in Mexico, she called her son Andrew to tell him that she was coming home, and he, of course, informed police of this development. It was at this time that her sons became aware that Clark Coit had not died of a heart attack and that their mother likely killed him. They had no more loyalty to her. Police staked out Jill's home in Greeley, and sure enough, a rental car driven by Jill and Michael came slowly down the road. Within minutes, the police surrounded their car, and they were arrested. They had $3,000 cash on them. During her interview, she started peppering detectives with questions and trying to gain control of the interview, as if she were the investigator. She was especially concerned with her arrest being on the front page of the Steamboat Springs newspaper. She told them that she, the only reason Jerry ever married her was because people thought that he was gay, and that other people had started those nasty rumors about him. She skirted around being married to Roy Carroll in Texas, and when asked the name any of any of Jerry's suspected lovers, she said to look at his address book. She claimed he made her cut her hair to look more like a little boy, and that he was barely sexual with her. She went into her various ailments, including degenerative arthritis, hypoglycemia, dyslexia, and epilepsy. It was practically a medical miracle that she had maintained such an active life of scamming and traveling. She told investigators that if he touched her, she might have a seizure. She knew some gory details of the murder, which she claimed she heard around town. She couldn't be sure where the location was of any of the guns she owned. She then began asking investigators how long it would be until her trial. She figured it would be about a month, and they informed her that it could be many months and even over a year. And this was not the sort of news that pleased her, and she couldn't even pay her bail. Police managed to track Jill and Michael's activities. They cleaned out her home in Greeley, and Michael sold his Harley and cashed the check. They rented a room at Lowry Air Force Base. They also rented a car, despite having two cars of their own, which was odd behavior for two people with nothing to hide, supposedly. At Lowry Air Force Base, they found a plastic bag with maps of Mexico, two wigs, surgical gloves, and tickets for trains and transport around Europe. They found a MasterCard for a Jill Bacchus, the power of attorney from Mexico, a photocopy of a military ID for Roy C. Carroll, and an envelope addressed to Jill Coit Bacchus. In Jill's forerunner, they found a stun gun, which matched marks on Jerry Boggs, which were believed to be caused by a stun gun at that time. They removed hair and fibers from the carpet, as well as credit cards for Roy C. Carroll. Jill's son, Seth, and his wife were given immunity for their testimony against Jill. Seth took the stand and said that between 3.30 and 4, he received a call from his mother telling him, Hey, baby, it's over and it's messy. Seth said that Jill told him Michael had an untraceable twenty two caliber handgun. He also provided devastating testimony that Jill had attempted to get him to kill Jerry. Julie, Seth's wife, testified that she had seen Jill trying on wigs and scarves as disguises. People testified, including Michael's co-worker, that Jill and Michael had attempted to find someone to kill Jerry for some time. The defense maintained that there was no physical evidence linking Jill or Michael to the murder. Jill's former husband, Carl Steely, said that he was lucky to be alive. After so many years of scams, she became too confident with what she could get away with. Roy Carroll from Texas had no comment, and Louise DeRosa, who was now a judge, also had no comment. Eldon Metzger came out to say that he was the only person to know Jill deep down and understand her good side. Around this time, a safe deposit box owned by Jill was opened and a slew of handguns were found, but none were the murder weapon. Jill's tenant also testified that Jill made an effort to let him know that they were camping during the time of the murder, which he found odd. 
He also indicated Jill told him her ex-husband was dead before the body had even been discovered. The trial was moved to a different county and scheduled. In the meantime, an award was put out for any information in the case of mur the murder of Jerry Boggs. Inside Boggs' hardware, a framed memorial was placed by his family. In a six-week trial, extending from February to March 1995, Jill and Michael were both found guilty of first-degree murder. This was even after the judge refused to allow information about Jill's bigamy in the trial and also refused a 911 call made by Douglas Boggs after finding his brother's body where he accused Jill of murdering his brother in the call. The trial, strangely, didn't receive much attention. The spectator seats were empty and there was scarcely any newspaper who covered the story outside of Colorado. Both Jill and Michael were given life sentences with no parole possibility. Jill is still imprisoned at the Denver Women's Correctional Facility near Stapleton. She has a number of interviews out there and loves to talk about herself. I think it's pretty clear from her interviews that she's mentally unstable. There's an episode about her on Forensic Files Season 8, Episode 15 or 12, depending on the series you have. Many resources say that Jill married Michael Backus, but no information verifying that has ever been found, so she officially had nine husbands. There's also a movie about her called Legacy of Sin, the William Coit story starring Meredith Salinger. Michael Backus was denied parole in October 2009, and he remains in the Colorado Department of Corrections at an unverified location. There's little doubt in my mind that he considers what a mistake it was to get involved with Jill on a daily basis and what a mistake it was to go along with everything she said. The case of Clark Coit has never been officially solved and members of his family had not heard a word from the Houston Police Department about 20 years after it had occurred. Jill would likely have been stopped then and there had the Houston Police Department not been such a mess at the time and had the investigation of Dean Coral not been underway. In her life, Jill used at least 16 names, Jill Coit, Jill Johansson Coit, Jill Onita Billiot, Jill Steely, with the name spelled wrong, Jill Steely spelled correctly, Jill Coit Steely, Jill Boggs, Jill Johansson, Jill Carroll, Jill Kisla, Jill Billiot, Jill Einan, Jill Brody, Jill Metzger, Jill Moore, and Jill DeRosa with the name spelled wrong. She also had used Bacchus as a last name and the first name of Sandra a couple of times. She had birthdays of June 11, 1944, 1946, 1947, 1950, and 1951. When asked why she married so many men, she said in her defense, I sleep with them, I marry them, okay? I could just sleep with them. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a story of Jill Coit. Or Jill Billiot, or whatever you want to call her, I guess, at this point. I will have a new historical episode up in about two weeks. And as always, I'm going to be posting some pictures from this book that I scanned online. You can find those pictures on Instagram and Facebook. So thanks, guys. Until next time.